Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Before we begin, I wanted to give you all a heads up on a training that's coming up this April. I will be co-facilitating an experiential workshop called Psychedelic Practitioner Immersives, Psychedelic Space Holding and Integration. This will be in Lyons, Colorado, near Boulder, April 12th through the 16th. And I think this should be a really wonderful experience and training. So I'll put a link to the workshop details and registration in the show notes. Today is the first in a two-part look at dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT. This episode will focus on what DBT is and how it works. Then in two weeks, we'll hear Daniel's story of how DBT helped him recover from a horrific period of psychiatric suffering. We might think of DBT as kind of a merger of cognitive behavioral therapy with Zen Buddhism. DBT's founder, Marsha Linehan, was institutionalized as an adolescent with what she later described as borderline personality disorder. She survived her years of self-harm and suicidality and eventually went on to combine her doctoral work in psychology with her Zen meditation practice, and she created DBT. DBT is probably best known for successfully treating self-harm and suicidality, particularly in the context of complex PTSD and borderline personality disorders, and primarily through building skills to cope with emotional dysregulation. Today, I sit down with my colleague, Dr. Kelly Sonnenfeld, a psychologist and DBT expert here in Northern Colorado. Kelly and I have collaborated together for years, and it was really wonderful to create this episode with her. I learned a lot. And I know you well too. Today I'm sitting here with Dr. Kelly Sonnenfeld. This is a real treat. As I mentioned a few episodes ago, one of the unexpected joys of this podcast is that I get to sit down with some of my favorite colleagues and learn from them. And Kelly's been someone who I've collaborated with for years. But uh, when I started thinking about doing a DBT episode, I knew it had to be her. This will probably be the longest period of time that we've actually just sat down face-to-face and talked, so I'm really looking forward to this, so I appreciate you coming. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. How would you describe DBT? I mean, I'm often referring people to DBT and to you specifically, and they'll say, well, what is it? Yeah. And I feel a little bit like I'm describing Australian rules football. Like, I have a general sense of it, <laughs> but uh, I don't actually feel like I have a good elevator speech about what is DBT. Yeah. My elevator spiel about DBT is that it's a cognitive behavioral therapy for folks who struggle primarily with emotion dysregulation. And if you're exposed to CBT, if you know what CBT is, it's a lot like that, except with acceptance and mindfulness strategies woven in. And um, I think what most people think of when they think of DBT are just the skills, those have gotten a lot of airtime, um, but it's actually a four-modal treatment. So it's the individual therapy with your DBT therapist weekly. It's the skills group that you're attending, hopefully also weekly. It's the phone coaching aspect where you have, ac- you have access to your DBT therapist outside of session for skills generalization because crises don't typically occur in my office. <laughs> they occur outside of the office, and that's exactly when you need a coach the most. Um, and so, and then the other kind of more invisible component is every DBT therapist sits on a DBT consultation team because treating this population is tough and has a high burnout rate. And so we're always hoping to 
improve our fidelity to the treatment and also support one another with observing our own limits um, so that we can do this work for the long term. Yeah. And it's my understanding that a DBT therapy session, whether it's individual or group, looks very different than your typical you know, hour session with your therapist. Yeah. I think it is different in, because of the treatment hierarchy. So there's this, I think people often describe DBT as structured, and that's true to some degree. Uh, clients fill out what's called a diary card every day, hopefully every day, <laughs> if you're my client and you're listening to us through this, fill out your diary card. And that gives me a sense of what behaviors they've engaged in throughout the week, what skills they've used, what emotions have come up for them at what intensity what urges have come up for them at what intensity. And so that's kind of my quick x-ray. At the very beginning of session, I know, okay, this is, this is the highlights of what highlights and lowlights of what has occurred through the week. The diary cards. The diary yeah. card. Yeah. And so based on that diary card, we prioritize and treat behaviors um, by this hierarchy. So always first, we target safety interfering behavior first. So if you come in and you've had a suicidal behavior or attempt or a self-harm behavior, and you want to talk about your breakup, we will talk about your breakup, but we're going to also talk about the safety interfering behavior probably first um, because therapy doesn't have a shot at working if you don't make it to the next week. And so those are always targeted and prioritized first. And then the second thing we target are therapy interfering behaviors. So and therapy interfering behaviors are things that my clients can engage in or I can engage in. So that can look like canceling session last minute out of avoidance. That can look like not doing homework, not calling for coaching when it would be effective. It can look like me jumping to problem solving before providing adequate validation. Uh, it can look like me forgetting something really important that a client might have told you, might have told me. And so the relationship is paramount as it should be. You know, if you're not feeling heard and understood and seen and like I am on your team, we're not going to go anywhere. It's just going to be a boat spinning. Is it a little bit more of a coaching kind of relationship? I'm just picturing diary cards like, okay, we're looking at what went went well, what didn't go well, um, what skills you're working on, what you're not working on, where Mm -hmm. we need to move to. I'm, and I, I say coaching in a yeah. in a positive way, like it's you're helping move people to identify problem areas and pick appropriate skills and work on the skills and yeah, definitely. I think that it's I my hope is always that the agenda setting piece is really collaborative, and so you know, clients there's understandable avoidance talking about behaviors that prompt shame. Um, And so it's always my job to validate, yes, that emotion makes so much sense. The avoidance makes so much sense. And the purpose of us talking about this behavior is not for you to go down the shame tunnel and spiral. Um, It's for us to look at, you know, this is all data. How do we intervene with this next time something like this happens so that you can have a different outcome? And so, yeah, I think a coaching relationship is a good way to describe it. So you're a psychologist, you're a PhD. Yep. Yeah. 
So I'm curious because, you know, I think of DBT as an important kind of part of the psychotherapy realm, but it's definitely its own street. And most therapists are not doing DBT. Most are not trained in it. So what was your path into DBT? My path to DBT was through suicide prevention, actually. In my master's program, I got a graduate assistantship in suicide prevention in the Department of Student Life, and I was tasked with organizing a suicide prevention week and um, implementing you know, programming in some universities. And it, I learned at that time, and it's still to this day, suicide is the second leading cause of death for college students. Tenth, uh, I think, in across all age groups here in the United States. And I was pretty astounded by that statistic. And so that kind of launched me into the field of suicidology. And I started to develop some research interests. And at that time was pretty amazed, actually, that I hadn't been exposed to DBT at any point in my graduate training. Had a lot of CBT, a lot of interpersonal training, um, but I didn't learn any DBT until my third year in my PhD program, whereas I had learned about Freud. <laughs> I don't even know how many times. <laughs> and so, so yeah, it kind of came from a, like, this is the problem. Suicide is this problem in this population. And what's some, what are some of the best tools we have to solve this problem? And DBT is the king or queen of the hill, really, when it comes to research um, for suicidal behaviors. There's 21 uh, randomized control trials now supporting its efficacy. So um, it became something I knew I had to learn. Yeah. Do you have a sense why DBT was so you know, studied for suicidality in particular? Like what it was about that modality that got people interested in, in the potential of dialing down suicide? I think it was all Marsha. She, her whole single-minded focus throughout her graduate studies and then once she launched into academia was, I want to work with the most suicidal patients um, in, in any clinical setting where she was. And yeah, maybe this is a good time to jump into yeah. the origin story of DBT because Marsha Linehan started it. And I think from what, what I know of her story, it's totally fascinating. Yeah. Yes, I agree. You can't talk about DBT without talking about Marsha. So for a long time, she likes to say that DBT was born in 1980 when she got her first NIMH grant to study treatment for suicidal self-harming patients who at the time were meeting criteria for borderline personality disorder, um, which was just a diagnosis like then, I think, in that year. Uh, but she later has come out sharing her own personal story that DBT really started in 1960 when she was a senior in high school and her whole mental health collapsed essentially. And she was transported to the Institute of Living in Connecticut and um, put on in seclusion for the majority of two years um, in a very, 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 you know, tried every single psychotropic medication, ECT, um, and she was called at the time one of the most difficult patients that the hospital had ever seen. And so after those two awful years, she made a vow to herself that she would return um, and help people get out of hell, as she 
called it. And her whole life was devoted to creating a treatment to help people who, it was to create a treatment that she needed, honestly, at the time she was 18. And it just didn't exist. Did she start developing any of it while she was in that solitary confinement or did it come later? She had some interesting light bulb moments, I think, while she was at the Institute of Living. One of the things that they did as a consequence for ineffective behavior was they would do what they called cold pack therapy. And so they would wrap the patients in, you know, cold sheets and ice packs. And it was supposed to be very aversive, but Marsha found that it was actually quite calming for her and soothing. And sometimes she would even ask for it. And so that is kind of the origin of TIP, which is one of the most well-known DBT skills for distress tolerance. It's a way to... What does that stand for? Uh, Temperature, intense exercise, paced breathing, and progressive muscle relaxation. And so the temperature aspect involves putting ice or cold water kind of around the area of your face where a snorkel mask would be. Mm -hmm. And it activates this thing called the mammalian dive reflex, which, you know, activates basically the parasympathetic nervous system. It brings your heart rate down, blood pressure, all of your organ systems kind of slow down as a survival mechanism. Mm. That came from Marsha being packed in ice. Yes. Wow. Yeah. A couple other things. I mean, she started to understand more about what was reinforcing her self-harm behaviors um, at the Institute of Living. You know, at the time, They just didn't really have a whole lot of understanding of behavioral shaping. And so she would get a lot of care and attention from the staff after she would engage in self-injury. And she quickly realized, oh, (laughs) this is something that's keeping this behavior going. Uh, And so that became part of the treatment as well, is understanding what are the controlling variables for these behaviors that clients are really trying to change. Yeah. Say some more about the, the D, the dialectical. I think a lot of people understand what behavior therapy is or cognitive behavioral therapy, but yeah. what's, what's the D? The D is, stands for dialectical, and it's a fancy philosophical term <laughs> for the idea that we can hold two opposing truths or ideas at the same time and work towards a synthesis. So once I was exposed to the idea of dialectics, I, you start to see them, you start to see it everywhere. Like, and anyone who's ever been in a relationship knows you can hate and love someone at the same time. <laughs> uh, and you can feel both fear and excitement about a transition. And you can both grieve and, you know, feel resentment towards a person that you might have lost in your life. So, or desperately want to die. Yes. Yet still, <clears throat> excuse me, still a part of you wants to live. Absolutely. And so the main dialectic in DBT that we are always working with clients on, and I as a therapist am always trying to straddle, is the idea that clients are perfectly acceptable as they are right now in this moment. They're doing the best they can. They want to be happy. And they need to learn new behaviors in all relevant contexts in order for their lives to improve and change. You know, I think every therapist does this dance, even if you're not a DBT therapist. Uh, But we are really explicit about it in the treatment. Mm -hmm. 
And DBT is not a suicide prevention program. And I, I actually think it turns people off when they're referred to a DBT therapist because people in their life are scared that they're going to take their own life. Uh, however, it is the gold standard treatment for suicidal behaviors and self-harm behaviors. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's cognitive therapy, there's David Jobs's CAMS approach, which all have pretty good research support too. But one of the things Marcia did really well was um, creating a training program that trained now, I think, 10,000 DBT therapists around the world. So it's kind of risen in popularity because of her emphasis on training. Yeah. Your DBT training had to come largely after a PhD. Correct. Yeah. It was on my postdoc fellowship yeah. that they sent me to Seattle. And <laughs> I didn't see Marcia at the time. She had retired <laughs> when I was there. Um, but some of her, uh, you know, graduate students have gone on to, um, you know, now be trainers in for behavioral tech. And so mm -hmm. some of her former students were trainers. And that's when things really clicked for me. I have this sense of DBT as the go-to for people who are self-harming or suicidal or parasuicidal. And I don't know why that is. I mean, I'm curious what you would say on that. But when I work with people who are scary, mm -hmm. and I think um, not just at risk of killing themselves, but of majorly injuring, injuring themselves or causing permanent damage, I always think about DBT as the go-to. And yeah. is that I'm, I'm wondering if I'm thinking about DBT in too limiting of a way or if that actually is kind of a sweet spot for the, for the yeah. therapy. I think there are a few things that make DBT really unique. And the first is the incorporation of skills into the treatment. I think so. I think there are lots of really efficacious, you know, approaches and DBT is uh, admittedly a large dose of treatment you are in skills group two hours a week, you're in individual therapy one hour a week. So that's two hours more than most outpatient levels of care. Um, and so I always think about like, does this client need this big dose of treatment? Or do they need, you know, is, is like a different approach going to be just fine for them. But for so many clients who are coming in so much behavioral discontrol, it's like, yes, you absolutely need these all of these modes of treatment and the ability to contact me outside of session and, you know, active commitment regarding safety every single week. Um, like that's, that's something I feel like you're not going to get with other approaches. Do DBT therapists think about self-harm in a different way, say, than a psychologist not trained in DBT? I mean, do you think, is there kind of a DBT perspective to self-harm or is it just that DBT has a specific kind of you know, set of strategies and skills to deal with it. In DBT, we say that every behavior has a function. And so we are always trying to look at what is the function of this client's self-harm. Is it to escape? Is it to communicate a need? Is it to numb out and dissociate? Um, and so based on whatever that function is, and we want to get really, really, really clear on it, uh, we can then figure out, okay, what, 
what other skills, what other behaviors can we use that are going to still get that function met for you? Because that function is valid. Um, and then try to get some commitment around, okay, I, I can commit to trying these new things. Um, and so I don't know if the DBT perspective is, I don't know, how would you, what are you thinking about when you think of self-harm and its role for clients? Yeah, I guess I typically think of self-harm as, as a calming strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's violent, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's a way to produce endorphins or, um, enough sort of painful distraction that they're able to pull themselves out of. Yeah, but I guess mostly I think of it as soothing, whether mm-hmm. it doesn't seem soothing at all. You know, I, I tend to think of cutting or burning yourself like shooting heroin. Yeah. Like it's kind of does the same thing. Absolutely. And I have clients, some of my clients talk about it in the same way in, in terms of so many days clean or so many days abstinent from self-harm. Mm-hmm. So I think the dopamine <laughs> mm-hmm. around it is, is similar to a substance. Sometimes I try to send people to DBT and they say, hey, I read about that. I don't self-harm. <laughs> I'm not suicidal. I don't, I, it's not my place. You don't need that. And, and uh, I mean, do you have many people show up that that's not an issue? Or by the time they come to see you, is self-harm and suicidality almost always part of the package? It is not always part of the package. What I find more than anything is clients coming to me just feeling like their life is completely unmanageable because of these behaviors. And sometimes these behaviors are just pure avoidance. Sometimes they it's fear driving the bus and their world has become so, so very small. Uh, but the thing that everybody has in common is that emotions are driving the bus most of the day and they don't want them to anymore. What's the DBT approach in general for dealing with self-harm? in terms of monitoring it and skills and dialectic. And is there kind of a general approach that you think about when somebody comes in who's, you know, cutting and burning themselves regularly to try to take themselves out of whatever emotional place they don't want to be in? Well, where we start always in DVT is with commitment. So, and it's a big ask. It's a door in the face (laughs) ask around DVT was designed as a one-year treatment. That doesn't mean if you graduate sooner or if it takes longer, that's not okay. That's okay. But I ask clients at the year outset, can you agree to taking suicide off of the table for a year while you work with me and committing to reducing all safety interfering behavior, which includes self-harm? That's a big ask. It's a big ask. I mean, what percentage of people say no way? Not many. first four sessions of DBT are commitment sessions. Mm. And so I am, I am like, are you sure you want to do this? I like, this is a lot of work. Behavior change is hard. You've told me that there's all these pros to keeping this behavior around in your life. Are you sure? (laughs) And so I'm really doing a lot of devil's advocate 
and um, motivational interviewing, all those strategies to get clients bought in so that we have a really great post-it note to come back to when the going gets tough and mm-hmm. life throws those inevitable curveballs. And I can remind them, hey. So you, so they all have to commit to one year, no suicidality. And, and number two, to try to cut down on self-harm? We, I ask for abstinence. Okay, no, and, yeah. and sometimes clients can't, they very honestly can't give me that. They can say, I can commit to not ending my life uh, for a week. I can commit to no self-harm for a week. I can commit to going home and getting rid of my razors and sending you a picture of them in the dumpster. And I'll, I start with what they're willing to give me, but I ask for the moon. Mm-hmm. I like that you call it abstinence because mm-hmm. you know, I was just comparing cutting with heroin. Yeah, it, It's this sort of compulsive addictive behavior that's at least initially getting you to a place you want to get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want them completely sold on the idea that this behavior is blowing up their life. And in order to achieve their life worth living goals, it has to stop. I ask my people like for a day or two or a week. I need to up it. <laughs> <laughs> and you say, hey, I talked to Dr. Sonnenfeld. I've been uh, lowballing this. I need a year. I need a year. Yeah. It's sort of like wearing a seatbelt. Like you wear a seatbelt not because you think every single time you get in the car, you're going to be in a car accident. Um, you know, we are asking clients for this abstinence, this huge commitment because we want it to be there when we put the microscope on when the behavior probably inevitably happens because motivation is going to wax and wane. And so our number one tool for looking at a behavior with that microscopic lens, uh, slicing the salami thin, as one of my colleagues likes to put it, (laughs) is what's called a behavior chain analysis. And so we look at what was the event that prompted this behavior, what were all the things that you did between that prompting event and engaging in the behavior, what were the behavior's consequences, what made you vulnerable to that situation coming up that day, did you, had you taken your meds, had you connected with anybody, had you left your house, you know, all those types of things that make us more vulnerable to our emotions. And then we engage in, you know, okay, what are the behaviors that we're going to try to implement in this chain so that, again, we have a different outcome next time. That behavior chain is something that I, I just think it's an amazing tool when it's done well. It takes a lot of skill um, for clinicians to and by behavior be, chain, you mean this led to this, led to this, led to this. Yes, exactly. Because yeah. mm-hmm. the idea is like no one wakes up and is like, how can I make my life really miserable today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how can I have my children removed because of my bad behaviors? Yeah. No. Yeah. Every behavior has a cause. And um, it's often, you know, something you're in our environment or often how we were responded to. And so knowing the cause is key to changing the behavior And, um, we're certainly not going to, I mean, how many times have you wished, gosh, I wish I could just stop that. I wish I could just stop doing that thing. And if it were only that simple, um, if all, if it were only commitment that it took DBT therapists wouldn't have a job. Yeah. So the behavior chain gets implemented anytime some behavior happens that's problematic or risky or. Yeah. Anytime there's an, a target behavior. So that can be self-injury or a suicide attempt. That can be a really, really therapy-destroying behavior, like 
saying fuck you <laughs> to your <laughs> therapist or, <laughs> um, you know, communicating a threat in the middle of the night. Um, or, I mean, my clients, we do behavior chains on all kinds of things, not getting to bed on time. Um, which is something I struggle with the bedtime procrastination <laughs> piece of things. Um, so it's just anything that they feel like is not bringing them closer to their values and their goals. Mm-hmm. And what happens when there's a bona fide attempt? So again, there's that's job one of commitment. You're not going to try to kill yourself, mm-hmm. but in, invariably, I guess that must happen. Yeah. Does that mean they have to leave DBT or double down with more intensive sessions or what does that look like? It depends. Uh, we, in DBT, we have this thing called the 24 hour rule where if clients have engaged in safety interfering behavior, so that's an attempt or self-harm, they can't have contact with their therapist for 24 hours. Mm. So the opposite of the Marsha Linehan thing. Exactly. So there she is self-harming, pounding her head against the wall. And everyone's coming, yeah. saying, what's going on? What's going on? Mm. And she realized that's incredibly reinforcing. And so the goal of the 24-hour rule is not for this to be punishing at all. It's really, you know, the fact that we are all products of reinforcement. And uh, if you don't reach out to me until after you've engaged in this behavior, I don't have the chance to provide you with any coaching or support. And so... Um, you will, it's, it's not like you won't get care and validation from me. It just won't be immediately after the behavior occurs. Mm. Um, and that's been for me as a therapist, one of the harder, it's hard to be a behaviorist. Sometimes it's hard to to enforce that. I've been on the other end of it where tearful patient talking to me who we share. I know. I'm still in the window. I can't reach out to her. I know. But it makes total sense the way you describe it now, right? It's not, supposed to be a punishment or aversive it's supposed to be not reinforcing of the exactly undesired behavior we're trying to shape that behavior up of reach out to me before this happens I know there's a bunch of DBT skills. Um, if you had to list like a, a top three. Top three. Yeah. Like I've, I've often heard people say that of the 12 steps of AA, if you just master step one, that's all you need. Yeah. The powerlessness step. Yeah. But I'm wondering, you know, DBT, I hear these thrown around, but you know, do you have like a, a uh, greatest hits list of the skills that are most crucial to master if you're going to really learn to handle emotional dysregulation and not move towards self-harm and suicide. You got to, you got to have wise mind. Uh, that's pretty key. So wise mind is one of the mindfulness skills and it's another example of a dialectic. It's this idea that we all have this inner wisdom that is a synthesis of our emotions, how we feel about a situation and our emotion mind and our reasonable mind, what we know to be true, what's factual. 
And so many clients come to DBT feeling completely ruled by their emotion mind and honestly in disbelief that they even have a wise mind within. And none of us are in wise mind all the time. Not even the Dalai Lama lives there uh, all the time. But it's such an amazing, amazingly powerful thing to see clients move closer and closer to their wise mind and then to make decisions from that place, from that intuitive knowing of this is what's in line with my values. This is what's best for me in the short and long term. And so... Give an example of that. Like non-wise mind might be... uh, (laughs) my boyfriend sent me a text that's really unclear and maybe mean. And now I feel sick to my stomach and now I'm texting back and he's not responding. And now I feel even more angry and sick. And I just feel this like poison inside of me and I'm going to go cut myself. Yeah. Um, what would a wise mind in that situation do? What would that look like? Well, we'd have to also look at the facts of the situation, uh, which sometimes can be, we have very few in often those texting <laughs> prompting events. Uh, you know, we really don't know what's going on the other, on the other end. And so... Which is maybe part of the, the Zen, part of the wisdom, right? Yeah. The not knowing. Yeah. We don't know and we need to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Pretty hard to do problem solving when we don't know much. And so... Emotion mind would look like honoring all of the emotions you just described, anger, frustration, fear, uh, and noticing all of the urges that are coming along with each of those emotions, often simultaneously. And so if wise mind were a sentence, it would be, I feel blank and no blank, therefore I'm going to do blank. Mm. So I feel livid (laughs) (laughs) and I know we have a zero percent chance of working through this over text and so I'm going to wait until I can see him in person or ask when we can meet face to face Mm -hmm. or sit with uncertainty Mm -hmm. it seems like so much of wise mind could be just take a breath and wait and just see, like see what evolves with your body or the situation or, um, because in the heat of it it can just feel like we need to do something right now. We have to act. I think it's such a big cue for emotion mind is that sense of urgency. It's a cue for me. Like I know when I am feeling that now, 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 uh, voice it's, it's means I'm in emotion mind usually. For my clients who've been in treatment long enough, often the wise mind sentence for them is, I feel hopeless, a burden, like I'm a huge inconvenience, like nothing is ever going to change. And I know there have been times I felt differently. I can connect to the waves of this that I have felt in my life as it, it's not always a constant. And so I'm going to wait to use this skill to reach out to Kelly to drive in wise mind because I can't drive in wise mind right now. You know, whatever it is that hopefully we've identified quite a few things that they can reach to. Do you think people who just have more insight or psychological mindedness 
can get this wise mind concept faster or is it just a skill that anybody can pick up if they practice it enough? I think it's actually a lot of DBT skills are simple, but not easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you look at wise mind, it's a Venn diagram. We've all seen one of those. Uh, and so you can look at it and intuitively it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I, and I think honestly, all of the DBT skills, they're like, they're just life skills. Like I say all the time, I wish we taught these in kindergarten mm-hmm. and some people need them more than others. But I'm a much more effective human, partner, parent, friend, daughter, since learning these skills. You can just tell your husband, we'll talk in 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm setting a stopwatch right now. What else would you say is in the top three? So wise mind um, as being maybe the number one most important skill or thing you might take from DBT, but what else? Yeah. Tip, I teach tip usually within the first two sessions because it is our number one strategy for those out-of-control emotions, often panic, often rage. Um, and so there is... You're yeah, say just, more detail about that. Like what, is, what are the different aspects of tip that people can choose if they're in such a bad place? Yeah. So just... An interesting piece of research is that when we're in emotion mind, the research is that we temporarily lose 30 IQ points. So if the average human is at 100, we're working with a 70 IQ, which is intellectual disability. And so this is, and this is universal. (laughs) And so there is not, you're not going to think your way out of emotion mind sometimes. And that's when we want to harness biology. And so tip is all about harnessing biology, using that cold water technique I talked about earlier, um, using intense exercise, because of course, when we're revved up by emotion, what's rolling through our systems are endorphins and cortisol. And the fastest way to get rid of that is to use it up with some exercise. So this just looks like getting your heart rate up for a really brief period. You don't have to go to the gym and hop on the elliptical for 30 minutes. This just looks like running up and down a couple flights of stairs in your apartment building. Hmm. This looks like doing 10 burpees, putting on your running shoes, running as fast as you can to the end of the block. Um, this works really well for some people. Um, like for preventing self-harm mm-hmm. for yeah, what other kind of things like dysregulated sort of stuff with it. Yeah. Basically anytime you're having the urge to engage in one of those behaviors that you no is blowing up your life. Yeah. We want to binge ins- eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We want to insert tip um, to see if we can bring down that emotional temperature. And if it doesn't work, I encourage you to ask yourself, what does not working mean? Because this is not going to take away the emotional pain. The whole goal of distress tolerance is to not make the situation worse for yourself. And so many of my clients feel like they moved from maladaptive coping with self-harm to adaptive coping with something like TIP um, or adaptive avoidance even. Mm. <laughs> we could even call it that. Um, and so, you know, the distress tolerance skills are, they, they are sur- crisis survival skills. They're not going to help you build a life worth living. The goal is not to build a life worth tolerating. I wouldn't wish that no. on, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Um, but But you have to survive if you can build a life. Yeah. You've got to survive this awful, awful, excruciating moment. 
He has an, another skill besides wise mind and tip that you think is particularly cogent and important. We're not supposed to have favorites, I suppose, <laughs> just like with our kids. <laughs> we all have favorites. <laughs> but I often tell people one of my favorite DBT skills is Dear Man. It was one of the very first ones I learned in graduate school, and I used it a lot uh, to say no, because that's one of the things I struggle with. <laughs> and so I feel like Dear Man was an incredibly benef- is an incredibly beneficial skill for anyone who struggles with asking for what you need or saying no in relationship. And it just gives a really helpful framework for how to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. That's an acronym. It's an acronym, yeah. yes. Yeah, what does it stand for? Strain. Lots of acronyms in DVD. Uh, it stands for describe the situation. So you said you were going to be home by 11 and you didn't get home till 1. Express your feelings about the situation using I statements, hopefully. This makes me feel worried and disrespected. Assert. Ask for specifically what you want the person to do differently or what you need. Uh, or say no in in a different situation. And so in the future, if you're running late, I would really like a call. And then the R is reinforce. So what is it going to be? What's going to be in it for this other person if they change their behavior? Um, If you could do this for me, I would be a lot easier to live with. And I wouldn't be a grouchy monster the next day because I hadn't slept. Mm -hmm. My problem with acronyms is I can't remember what they stand for. (laughs) So, there's so many acronyms in medical school. I just, uh, yeah. 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 It's true. And learning DBT is like learning another language. That's mm-hmm. why group takes six months. Because wow. there's so many of these things that, you know, you're trying to master and then implement in your daily life and then implement in the situations where, you know, emotions are at a 10 out of a 10. Oh my gosh, it's so hard. Mm-hmm. How do you think about borderline personality disorder? I think in the minds of a lot of mental health people, myself included, the Venn diagram between DBT and borderline personality disorder is almost overlapping. I think a lot of people might think, oh, the therapy for borderline personality disorder is DBT. DBT was created to treat uh, borderline personality disorder, which I don't think is exactly true, but it seems like there's a huge overlap. So I'm wondering how you think of that diagnosis um, and sort of the relationship with DBT. Yes, I have so many clients who come to my office so petrified that they might have borderline personality disorder because someone has recommended DBT to them. And so, like I said, there's 21 RCTs for DBT now. It's been shown to help a variety of the diagnoses we have in the DSM-5, but it's still most synonymous with BPD. And... So the way I think about BPD is that it's a set of behaviors that have evolved to function, you know, um, for someone, often just in the short term. Uh, And 
I hate the term. It seems we're stuck with it. Uh, <laughs> but what I want folks to hear always at the outset, if they, you know, if we do decide, yes, you meet five out of the nine criteria for this, is that folks, I see folks graduate from treatment no longer meeting criteria for BPD all the time. And so it's not something that you're stuck with or saddled with your whole life. Uh, you might be one of those biologically sensitive to emotions, highly sensitive persons, that might not go away. Um, but the fact that you might struggle with this particular set of behaviors, that's, that is not a life sentence. My sense is that DBT sort of normalizes, hey, the, um, it's common that people will do you know, destructive things to try to feel better or mm-hmm. change some state. And, and whether you call that borderline personality disorder or not, here's the whole program that's going to help you move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, does that word even get mentioned much in individual and group sessions? People talk about, oh, I'm here for my borderline or this is to treat borderline. Or is it more, maybe that gets mentioned in the initial consultation, but then it's just going more into the behaviors. Yeah. It's really, it's not mentioned a lot in group. Um, it almost always, we shift the focus to observing and describing non-judgmentally the behaviors that you're wanting to decrease in your life or increase. It doesn't always have to be decreased, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it's, we are very much at the core behavioral yeah. therapist. Yeah. How often do you see someone in DBT who doesn't have meaningful trauma? Very rarely. Mm. Very rarely. I mean, that makes sense because you know, one of the main ways we learn to emotionally regulate is sort of co-regulating with our parents and yeah. sort of syncing our nervous systems and finding peace with mom or dad and mm-hmm. people that grow up in, in dyads or places where they just can't get that kind of co-regulation just don't learn how to do it. Yeah. Well, in Marsha's whole... Uh, theory about what brings folks to DBT is the biosocial theory. And so she, you know, found in her research that some individuals are just born into the world more biologically sensitive to emotions than others. The research is now, I think it's about one in four folks. This is neither, you know, good or bad, right or wrong. It's just like being born right-handed or left-handed or five, four or six, two. Um, (laughs) And so they have this biological sensitivity to emotions. And then not only that, but they're often in an invalidating environment. So they're in an an environment with their caregivers, with their peers. Maybe it's not until their first romantic relationship that tells them your emotions are too big, too much, out of hand. You need to tamp that down. You need to control your emotions. Go have those somewhere else where I don't see them. Uh, Whatever the case may be. And that invalidation causes really big problems regulating emotions. Um, folks learn one of two things. Okay, either I need to make my emotions bigger to get my needs met, or I need to pretend like I don't have any, and I need to mask and look like I'm doing fine, maybe take care of everybody else. And so that those two factors, the biological sensitivity and the invalidating environment, is kind of the two common ingredients.
What's your view of sort of where DBT fits in to the landscape of therapy? Because in general, I think most therapies are supportive-based, insight-based, relationship-based, but not too many therapies are so skills-based. I mean, CBT is, you know, CBT and DBT are similar. I mean, is it your sense that it's uh, that you guys are kind of a subspecialty and you're, you are addressing certain problems that are more amenable to this approach? Or are you thinking mm, the other therapists are missing the boat that actually if more of the inside oriented therapists and supportive therapists would do more of this kind of structured work that we do at DBT that they would get better results? Yeah, I think that so often what is driving these behaviors is a skills deficit. And so that is where DBT comes in with, you know, flying colors, because we're like, look at all these skills, you know, over 35, I think skills that we can um, teach you and implement and, you know, build up in you. It's not always, though, a skills deficit. And so sometimes it's sometimes it's an environment that is very inadvertently reinforcing these out-of-control behaviors. Sometimes it is, uh, you know, faulty, automatic thinking, core beliefs. Um, Although I will be honest, I don't have a ton of luck, I feel like, with cognitive modification (laughs) with the population I'm currently working with. It's like shame is almost woven into the DNA. Mm-hmm. of a lot of my clients um it's very very deep profound overlearned self-loathing yeah you're, you can't do it seems like any meaningful cognitive work when shame is the is the operating system yeah it just shuts down all thinking and reasoning and analytical work mm-hmm. and so i feel like i see the most i guess i see just the most success with very slow incremental behavior change you know you just if you think about a baby growing it's like you never look at a baby and like well you just grew (laughs) or a plant like Mm. you know I've, I've tried but I haven't ever seen my plants you know growing their new leaves or anything and so that is the really cool part of being on this journey with so many folks is when they have that moment of oh my gosh six months ago this situation would have had me in bed for a week and okay maybe I still engaged in some target behaviors or some ineffective behaviors but my emotional resilience is in a completely different place Mm -hmm. how does transference play into this at at all in dbt because I would imagine whether you're ready or not you become a maternal figure for a lot of people because well, you are a mom, but you are setting rules. Mm-hmm. You are kind and wise and sort of saying this is the way it's going to be. And I would imagine that there's all sorts of acting out against mom. And does, So do you, under DBT, sort of address that directly as a transference thing, or is it more brought right back into the kind of behavioral analysis model? If it's a very clear role that I seem to be playing... I will name it. Uh, Thankfully, DBT is an approach where we are encouraged to be radically genuine with clients and that that is actually a therapeutic intervention. And so I'm really grateful that I can use myself and my emotional reactions uh, in the room, in the immediacy. 
um, with folks rather than having to be a blank slate and, you know, um, work, work on dynamics that way. So it's often named those types of counter-transference, transference reactions. We often talk about it as therapy interfering behavior. Um, and I will often name my own first cause I'm almost always involved. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I will say something along the lines of, yeah, I, I just want to confess. I feel like I really popped into some mess last week. I engaged in some therapy interfering behavior. I, um, came up with this behavioral assignment for you without even asking you what you might think would be most supportive or effective. Uh, and then because you maybe really wanted to please me, you jumped right on board too. And then all this resentment and anger kept building for you over the seven days. Let's talk about that. Um, and so usually I try to do my best to own myself as fallible and start the conversation from that lens. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about yourself in this process of being a DBT therapist and you know working in the trenches with people suffering the way they are? I have learned that being a behaviorist is hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've learned that too from parenting. Um, <laughs> also, <laughs> we have the saying in DBT that contingencies create capabilities and... So by observing limits, the idea that that is sometimes the most supportive and loving thing I can do for a client who wants to get better, uh, who wants to not suffer, that's been one of the most profound things I've learned. What do you think is the most emotionally challenging or draining part of what you do because you I mean we do different work you and I but we both work with a lot of suicidal people how does that weigh on you how do you how do you handle that this treatment is my buoy when I feel like I'm drowning and I want to jump into the pit of despair with my clients um you know this idea that there is um there's always another way to solve this problem besides suicide. My team is a buoy. I can't imagine doing this work without, you know, the three other women on my consultation team doing it with me. And when one of us loses a client to suicide, we say that we all lost a client to suicide. Um, because it's not just it's not just me treating my clients. Mm-hmm. It's these, you know, four other minds as well. It reminds me of what an attending told me in residency when I had my first suicide. He said, uh, if you're going to work with sick people, you're going to have deaths. Yeah. And he said, if you avoid sick people, you might be able to avoid deaths. But he said, then he said, do you want to work with sick people? I said, yeah. He said, you're going to have suicides. Yeah. Who will you not work with? I'm imagining when you first either get a referral or you sit down for the initial session or two, I'm, I mean, are there certain 
types of problems or people or, I mean, what gets your red lights going, you think, maybe even unilaterally you say, no, this is not going to be your thing? I set a limit, I think two years ago now, uh, that I wouldn't work with serious homicidal ideation anymore. Anymore. (laughs) 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 Enough weapons, you said. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, anger, out of control anger, something very common that brings folks to my practice. Uh, But it became a just something that was too difficult for me to manage once I became once I had a family and, you know, started to just be really, really concerned about folks not necessarily being honest with their safety plans. Um, and so I am impressed. There are a lot of DBT folks in forensic settings, like, you know, psychiatric hospitals or those sorts of things. Um, and I have a whole level of respect for folks who do DBT with, that population. But it's not for me anymore. Probably the most difficult thing for me as a DBT therapist is being on the receiving end of uh, clients' rage and frustration. And that's something I think all therapists kind of sign up for when you sign up to do this work. Uh, But it's been really painful for me to have clients say things like, well, I know that I'm just this much money for you a week and you don't care anything, you know, you don't care a thing about me. Um, I want to sell a t-shirt in my office that says therapists are people too. (laughs) And this is a real relationship where I really care about you. And, um, it's on me just as much as it's on the client to use my skills in those moments. Uh, but it doesn't mean that I don't come home at the end of the end of the day, you know, carrying that, sitting with that, going to sleep with that. Um, and so, you know, I, on the one hand, I'm holding the hope that there's, this is the cycle rupture and repair, and we're going to work through this. Um, but it's, I don't think it's any easier for me than, than when I started this six or seven years ago too. Plus I can see people taking out their frustration. They desperately want to cut. They want to finally do this overdose, but you're in the way. Yeah. Because you, they've made promises to you. They have to see you on Monday. They know that if they don't succeed in their attempt, that they will have a 24-hour ban from talking to you. Like, yeah. there's just a whole, like, you are keeping them afloat, but you're also preventing them from doing what they, what part of them wants to do. Mm-hmm. I could just imagine there'd be a lot of rage. Yeah. I mean, imagine, like, late night texts and, you know, nasty phone calls. Do you get those? Uh... Not that often. Oh, you're so lucky. <laughs> How do you do that? I need to make that rule too. You can't kill yourself for a year and you can't leave me nasty texts and phone mm-hmm. messages. Okay, I'll initiate that. I, when I had kids, I changed my coaching policies to no longer being 24 hours a day that I was available. I do 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. because sleep became very crucially important at that stage. Uh, and so... So, I mean, clients may still text me, but I, you know, the understanding is we won't talk about it until the morning. One of the things I've really appreciated about working with you is your tolerance for chaos and risk is high. Because yeah. you know, a lot of therapists who don't work with a lot of suicidality and, you know, scary people, if you will, 
um, there are very quick to want to get someone hospitalized or call 911. Or it's been many, I've had many phone calls with therapists where they say, we got to put this person in the hospital. And I say, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Like, well, he, he's saying he's suicidal. And I say, yeah, but he said that last week. And, you know, and I come up with my explanation. But I can remember a number of phone calls with you where we're talking about someone who's seemingly pretty scary and you're just very calm <laughs> and you you don't seem freaked out and I thought oh this is so nice Kelly's not freaked out I'm not freaked out yeah. we're just trying to handle this in this it's almost like we're trying to be in a wise mind mm-hmm. like not freak out and act out of our fear mode but just put our heads together and say all right is this a big deal do we need to do anything yeah or can we just sort of monitor and wait and be patient it's making me think of the idea that the strongest central nervous system in the room wins. Mm. And so I'm always trying to be the strongest central nervous system in terms of if I'm freaking out, like we are just pouring gasoline on this, um, this fire here. So yes, hospitalization is definitely a last resort for DBT clinicians. And that I think is primarily because we feel like hospitals often rob clients of the opportunity to use their skills. Mm -hmm. It's not very real world there. And so, and then, you know, additionally, suicide risk is so high right after discharge uh, that I would rather, you know, instead of deal with those three days that they're in and three days that they're out, like, can we come up with a plan, even if that's a skills check-in every single day, twice a day, that's going to keep you living your life um, and connection to your life with living goals. Um, so I'm glad hospitals exist. <laughs> I mean, I still am glad they exist, but I haven't, um, I haven't seen folks get a lot of, uh, I just haven't seen folks get a lot better. Right. It's more like they're going in sort of like an extended timeout. Yeah. And some people need a timeout, but exactly. right. But in terms of therapeutic change or continue, as you said, continuing to work on what they need to work on. Yeah. wondering, Kelly, if you have anything to say about your experience working, collaborating with psychiatrists, how that's gone well or not well. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's gone great with you. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of the few folks I work with that uh, is very responsive and available. It's not always the case for me. And this current, this population is, you know, let's talk about a mood you know, emotion dysregulation, like we are talking vastly different highs and lows within the span of a day sometimes. And so I understand psychiatrists not wanting to just do a med change as a result of, you know, a period of emotion, emotion dysregulation. But there are times where I am seeing like a huge increase in impulsivity or a huge increase in substance abuse. And I feel like, inter- like short-term intervention is really necessary it's been helpful when I've been able to collaborate with psychiatrists who are knowledgeable around that. And the other thing that's been hard working with psychiatrists is some folks are not as great about doing it because it's a pain in the butt. I think, um, like short term 
prescriptions, like only giving someone two weeks worth of medication mm. or a week's worth of medication. But so many of my clients, their preferred, their plan is take all their meds, you know, and they, they have this stockpile and they've gotten different meds from different providers. And, and now lots of insurance companies insist on it. Uh, I have so many e-faxes that come back 30 days uh, request and the, no, the insurance company is insisting on the three month. You know, to save money, I guess, but thinking, wait, we're giving people sometimes with really severe depression a three month supply, sometimes of multiple meds. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I know. This is where consultation to the client's environment is helpful because oftentimes we need to get a support person involved if we can't get, you know, less than a 90 day prescription. It's like, okay, well, your roommate is going to be supportive with only giving you a week's worth at a time. And this is how we're going to check in about that. Um, because yeah, I, I think that lethal means and excess is one of the most important things that clinicians need to do working with suicidal folks. Oh, one final question I just thought of what's your thought or policy when people come in for DBT and they're abusing substances because you know, what percentage of people who have emotional dysregulation are abusing substances? Huge. So high. But how do you think about that in terms of who's appropriate? Do you put that in the contract about what's appropriate to use or not? Or do you think about different substances in different ways? I want to assess what the client's goals are for their substances. Usually clients come in with some recognition of I'm using this to cope. I'm using this to cope. And I don't want to be using it to cope. And so we'll start with, okay, what would it look like to not use that to cope? And um, I would say most of my clients are not coming in with the goal of abstinence for a substance. Most of them want to be using in moderation. And so we will use all of our normal behavioral tactics to work towards that goal. And if we can't get there, you know, then we start to talk about, okay, what's, what's going on? Why can't we get there? with moderation, do we need, do we need a different approach? And in the second edition of the skills manual, Marcia came out with a whole set of skills for addiction, which are really great. Um, there's this one that is all about, um, clear mind and there's clean mind and addict mind. And what we're hoping for is clear mind. So in addict mind, of course, you're only focused on you know, fulfilling that urge and clean mind. You're also in the place of, I'm totally abstinent. I don't need to worry. I can go to a wedding and not, not have any problems. Um, and so you're kind of overconfident. And so we want to work towards that clear mind where we've committed to not using this behavior and we're on the lookout for always what might be warning signs and triggers. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a story which I think beautifully illustrates the power of DBT to change lives. How can you help the podcast? You can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can send one of these episodes to someone who you think might be moved by it. And also, you're always welcome to reach out to Chris and me through my website, craigheacockmd.com. get lots of letters. I answer everyone who writes. So if you have any comments or questions or just want to say hi, please reach out. See you soon.